0: This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about major environmental changes that have occurred in Southeast Utah since the last ice age. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned.
1: Time is a dimension of ecology that often doesn't get thought about a lot. And I actually think it's critical because until we know how unusual now is, we can't really do anything about it.
0: Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Allison Stegner. Allison is a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University, and there she studies small mammals as a way to understand present and past environments. Here with Allison, we speak to her about her work and how studying small mammal abundance and distributions on the landscape can give us a better understanding of environmental change through time. We begin our interview with Allison talking about the changes that have occurred in southeast Utah over the last 10,000 years.
1: Well, there's been a lot of change in southeast Utah and actually on the whole globe in the last 10,000 years. That started, of course, with leaving the last glacial cycle and entering into this interglacial period. So there was a lot of change right around the transition between the Pleistocene and the Holocene, which was about 10,000 years ago when glaciers disappeared. So the La Sals were glaciated, The Abajos may have been glaciated. We're not actually quite sure, but they certainly had a lot of snowpack on them. So you had this very cold environment that shifted into what we have today. And then in the last 200 years or maybe the last, let's be more generous and say the last 300 years or so, it's hard to say, there's been even more changes and those have been mostly driven by us, you know, so we've built towns, we're doing agriculture out here In Utah and across the world, there's lots of invasive species, so there's all these kind of new elements that are happening.
0: So you talked about that humans are largely responsible for a lot of the recent changes that we've seen, but in the past, what are the forces that are causing these large environmental changes?
1: glacial interglacial cycles they've characterized our planet for about the last million years and those are driven mainly by physical things about how the planet is positioned so like the tilt of the earth the shape of the orbit of the planet and then you get these feedbacks between ice sheets and the land surface that can be self-reinforcing until they kind of reach a tipping point and that's when we sort of swing back into an interglacial cycle There are lots of things that mediate those changes. Carbon dioxide is one, so carbon dioxide naturally fluctuates. So lots of things go into it. But in the past, it's all been kind of
0: physical, planetary things. You mentioned really briefly that the Lascelles were glaciated, Mm -hmm. but the Abajos were on shore. Mm -hmm. How do you
1: know? It's actually really fascinating how you can pick that apart. There are signs of glaciers that you can find geologically. One is that you can find these long parallel scratch marks on exposed rock. You can also find sediments that are called glacial till. It's like a very fine, actually very fertile soil type that you can find deposited in certain topographic places that you know glaciers come through and just ground the rocks to smithereens and kind of deposited that as it left. Another common sign of glaciers is talus slopes like you see on the La Sales. And there are some slopes like that in the Abajos, but we actually think that they may have been produced just by natural freeze cracking rather than glaciers. I think in all likelihood there was a glacier up there. We just don't have all of those pieces of evidence right now.
0: Sure. With these changes that you've described over Mm -hmm. the last 10,000 years, how much fluctuation has there been generally in population sizes and extinctions and introductions of living species that have occurred over these time periods in southeast Utah?
1: Yeah, so over the last 10,000 years, we haven't lost that many species. There are two that have gone missing sometime during the Holocene. We don't know exactly when. And that's the pygmy rabbit and the sagebrush vole. And those are both found in the Great Basin today. So it's it's kind of an interesting mystery to figure out why they're not here anymore, where we have habitat that seems really suitable, and you can find their fossils in alcoves and caves around southeastern Utah. So we know they were here for a while. Those have kind of disappeared. Otherwise, what we've seen is really just changes in abundance and small shifts in range of species out here. So for example, voles, kind of like mesic environments, wet environments, riparian zones, and they've pretty much retreated into the mountains where there's enough persistent moisture and abundances of native mammal species really haven't changed a whole lot. They fluctuate naturally quite a bit because their populations boom and bust or, you know, predators get really common. Or, But by and large, over the last 5,000 years, there haven't been big changes in abundance until the last couple centuries.
0: In the past, say, when there was that last big climatic shift mm-hmm. in the region – Is it clear how quickly we see ecological change occur with those big shifts? Yeah, mostly
1: what we know about southeastern Utah at the end of the last glacial maximum is relevant to the plants. They're really good plant fossils from that time period. There are probably good vertebrate fossils also, but they just haven't been studied at this point. But the vegetation changes really track climate with pretty high fidelity. So as climate's changing, the vegetation changes. And it doesn't change in a really directional way. Basically what we know about how plant species move across the planet as climate changes is that species respond individualistically they don't respond as whole communities so what we've seen in southeastern utah is that you get certain components of the vegetation coming in in the early holocene and then certain species leave after that and other species come in and so our modern vegetation that we see here today didn't really become established until about three thousand years ago Oh, wow! yeah, So it took a while to get all these different components together. But if you look at any one species, they respond really quickly to climate
0: and so, for the last five thousand years, though, it sounds like that the small mammal populations have maintained pretty much the same yeah they've been pretty much the same so do they do they track differently than the plants?
1: I think that the small mammal community out here is not hyper diverse. There are many more plant species out here than there are mammals.
0: <laughs> yeah, can you can you outline some of the mammal species that we do sure. have in the area?
1: Yes, we've got kangaroo rats. Those are very cool. They're bipedal. They actually hop just like kangaroos. They have these very long tails that they use for balance. They're really amazing to watch move th- through their environment. So kangaroo rats are one. We also have a couple species of voles. As I mentioned, they're kind of riparian species. We have a lot of different species of deer mice. So the one that you most commonly see like in your house is Paramiscus maniculatus. That's just a common deer mouse. But there are also rock mice, pinion mice. There are a bunch of different species within that category. My favorite is probably the silky pocket mice. They have these cute little white dots on their ears that look like earrings. And they're just very kind of docile and sweet. We have pack rats, of course. Those are also commonly found in people's garages. Another one I really like are the grasshopper mice. Those are the only carnivorous mice, and they will actually eat other small mammals. They'll eat scorpions and all kinds of insects, and they're really kind of wild. And then, of course, we have a bunch of different squirrels and chipmunks. That's kind of the broad sweep of what we have out here in the small mammal community. It's actually bigger than I had realized. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's more than you... Then you generally see, I mean, they're mostly nocturnals, with the exception of the squirrels. What are these guys
0: doing currently in our ecosystems?
1: I can tell you about some of the really important roles they play in the ecosystem. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Okay. A lot of people don't like that rodents burrow, but a lot of these species are burrowers. They create really extensive underground networks. Kangaroo rats do that. Prairie dogs do it, of course. And a lot of animals will rely on those burrow networks. And the burrows are really important for capturing rainwater in place and recharging aquifers. So if you don't have any of that, you just have kind of flat desert, the rainwater will just run right off into creeks and be gone. But if you've got this burrow system, they kind of sink in and it goes deep into the aquifer. So that's one really important thing they do. Small mammals also cache grain. So they'll gather seeds from native species and shove that in their burrows and that can be a source for seeds later on to come up when there's water
0: there are still obviously predators that they have to deal with here Mm -hmm. too and not many though
1: yeah so that's something i'm really interested in so we've lost a lot of the apex predators there there are some but not many mountain lions lynx wolves of course and we have an abundance of meso carnivores like coyotes and of course there are predatory birds, too, which are relying on a lot of these. I think that some of the big changes in abundance that I see in the, in the places I've worked are due to the fact that we don't have those big predators that keep smaller predators like coyotes in check. And the coyotes are kind of preferentially eating certain components of the small mammal community and then allowing other components to really take off.
0: Can you explain more about what you mean by that? Yeah.
1: So what I've seen in a lot of sites is that those common deer mice are 90% of the population or more, and the abundance of specialist species like kangaroo rats is really low. There are a few reasons that could be. I think one has to do with differences in where coyotes are being hunted So the number of coyotes hunted in San Juan County is really high relative to other parts of the state, especially along the 191 corridor. And some of the sites where I've been surveying small mammals are really close to that corridor. And those are the places where I see this huge abundance of deer mice. So I think that those deer mice are having a release from predation, whereas other sites that are further from where people are more often, I see fewer animals, but a better balance
0: of what's out on the landscape. And so you study their abundances and distribution on the landscape now and also Mm -hmm. into the past. Yeah. And so can you start explaining how you do that? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I'm interested in comparing what we have today to what's been here over the long term to understand if what's here today is typical or if we're seeing changes. And the way I do that is I excavate these fossil sites that are generated by pack rats pack rats collect coyote scats and raptor pellets and on all kinds of found objects into their nests there's identifiable bone in all that material it gets buried over time and then i can dig it up and figure out what was there in the past and then i compare that fossil record to live trapping data so i go out with basically have a they're little miniature have heart traps called Shermans, spread them out in trap lines and then bait them, check them the next day, do that over many nights and you get a sense of what's living there now, or at least during
0: that season. So pack rat mittens, though, you would expect that there would be pack rat bones, but are there mm-hmm. other bones from small mammals represented in pack rat mittens?
1: Yeah, so pack rats are always really common in mittens, of course. But what they're collecting in those middens are scats from carnivores like coyotes and what owls and hawks cough up. Mostly what we use are teeth because they're really durable. They can pass through the digestive tract without being degraded and you can identify them to species. What's it like going through
0: a pack (laughs) rat (laughs) midden?
1: You know, in some ways it's really exciting because... It's so cool to pick up a bone and think, oh, my God, this is a species I haven't seen here before, or this is really rare, or, you know, oh, it's another jackrabbit. (laughs) So there's a component of, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt or something. But it's also pretty dirty work. You know, there's a ton of pack rat scat, of course. It smells pretty bad. It's usually very dusty. So you just have to have the passion (laughs) for the science
0: to get through that part of it. Yeah, it sounds cool. (laughs) So... When going through a midden, does it work kind of the way that I think about going down in soil layers kind of thing?
1: Yeah, it's exactly like that. So you excavate the way you would any paleontological site. You start at the top, you take one layer away. I am working in sediments that are really loose. They're mostly loose sand. So you can sift away the sand and bag up what's left. So that's like sticks and seeds and bone, of course. And you just work your way down in a hole. Out here, it's kind of tough to keep the sides of excavations back because it's so dry, but I use wooden frames constructed just of you know materials that you can get at the hardware store, kind of pound those frames into the ground as I go deeper and deeper.
0: And then how are you getting actual dates within yeah. the men?
1: So I use radiocarbon dating. For the most part, I do that on the bone specimens. It's just a process of selecting specimens and then processing them in the lab the final material gets measured in a linear accelerator. There are a few of those around the country. How many middens are there on the landscape? There are thousands of middens. There are so many middens out here in Utah. It's really phenomenal. (laughs) And most of them are not really appropriate for paleontological study. The kinds of middens you need for creating a good long record of the past They're usually found in large alcoves that have a good floor to them. So you'll see a lot of alcoves out here that are sort of just divots in the cliff face. Those aren't great because they can't hold the sediments in place and collect them over time. But if you can find one that's either half buried in the ground or has a good shelf to it, that's where you can get the midden and then sand accumulating on top of it. I'll find middens out here under pinyon trees and in vertical cracks and under stumps and things. Those are, you know, they're fun to see and there's good modern bone in them, but they're not great for much older material.
0: The ones that we do see around, are they usually still being used?
1: Yeah, they usually are. Pack rats can occupy the same sites for thousands and thousands of years. And that's why they're so great for paleontology. But what I'm digging up is not actually you know, I'm not destroying their homes completely. <laughs> so pack rats, as messy as they seem, are pretty fastidious. They really categorize their homes pretty strictly. Often what you'll see is like a big pile of sticks. I usually call that a stick midden. They'll have a consolidated midden that's usually composed of plant material and wood rat scat that they they urinate on it and it creates this sort of brownish block of material and that's always separate or it's usually separate from the stick midden and then you'll have a big sandy area out front where they're kind of moving through but they're not occupying it and then they're usually actually living in a crack in the rock or sort of under that stick midden and what I'm digging up is that sandy sediment next to everything rather than their actual
0: house. When thinking about small mammals here in southeast utah what kind of numbers are we talking about that are in our landscape
1: oh that's a that's a really good question and it's one i'm not i'm not sure i can answer i can tell you about what i trap there's one site that i've trapped in dry valley near 191 where on a given night i'll put out 140 traps and i will have what's called trap success my trap success will be 90% or more and that means 90% of my traps had animals in them At that site, I will even find traps where two animals have entered at the same time and been trapped, which is remarkable because they don't usually move around in pairs. That tells me that there's a ton of rodents on the landscape. At that site, as I mentioned earlier, 90% of the animals are deer mice, and I might get two kangaroo rats in a night or a single silky pocket mouse. In another site down in Beef Basin, which is far more remote, I might put out the same 140 traps and only capture six animals. There are a lot of reasons that that could be. I think that rodents in Beef Basin are probably more wary of predators than the ones that are up near 191, because I think there are more predators in Beef Basin. But I I also think that Beef Basin may be sort of a more representative sample than these sites that are kind of highly disturbed by the highway. How... Well, have our small mammals been studied? I would say that in southeastern Utah, there hasn't been a ton of trapping work. There was some done in the 70s and 80s, I think, but it wasn't extensive. It wasn't comprehensive. So we don't know a lot about small mammals in this part of Utah. So there have been good trapping campaigns in other parts of the country. The The uh, Sierras have been really well trapped, and that region is really well understood, The Sonoran and uh, Baja, we know a lot about the animals down there. But, you know, it's just a question of having a researcher with a
0: project in a single place. In looking at the past and what you've seen from the abundance and types of small mammals, Mm -hmm. what are you learning about the present, but also what are you learning about what we might see into the future?
1: The sites that I've studied here in southeastern Utah record a really interesting period of climate change on the Colorado Plateau, and that was a trend of warming and aridifying climate about 3,000 years ago. It also included these extended multi-decade droughts, and that's one of the things that we think may have caused the ancestral Puebloans that were living here to head south, because it became really difficult to live here with those extended droughts. What we're starting to see again now and what we're anticipating as the future of climate in southeastern Utah is warming, aridifying, and prolonged drought. So if we can get a sense of how species responded to that in the past, hopefully we can anticipate what they're going to do in the future. Are we
0: beginning to see what that response has looked like?
1: I think it's a little complicated because 3,000 years ago, we didn't have certain pressures that we have today, right? We didn't have roads, we didn't have urban development, we didn't have all these invasive grass species. What I've found in my research so far is that these species are really, they have a high capacity for moving around their environment and finding kind of micro habitats that suit them. So they can actually weather climate change pretty well to a point. But what they can't do is endure climate change and other pressures. So one of the reasons that we may be seeing declines in specialist granivores like silky pocket mice and kangaroo rats is that they are 100% reliant on native grass seeds. We think that they don't handle invasive grass seeds well, like cheatgrass. Is
0: it a regular practice for paleontologists to apply information about species response to shifts in climate to conservation?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a regular practice, but conservation paleobiology is something we as a field have been talking about for, I would say, 30 years And it's kind of had a slow build, but it's definitely something we think about a lot. And I think part of that is just that we're scientists. We care about our work and about our environment. And so you want to do everything you can to contribute to understanding our planet and how to deal with problems we have today, like climate change. There's a small and growing community of conservation paleobiologists, and that spans all time frames of paleontology. You know, we learn a lot about our planet from past m- major extinctions which were millions and millions of years ago you know it's sort of easier for someone like me who studies the quaternary because a lot of the same species are still around today so the last ten thousand years or so the quaternary quaternary is actually the um the pleistocene and the holocene so it's um, a little over a million years but the Holocene last 10,000 years is really, really relevant because everything is basically the same. It's just kind of moved around and we have a lot more data.
0: <laughs> do you see a way that your research could be used by land managers? That's always my hope, right?
1: I think that my research can be used by land managers in some contexts because I think that knowing what these animals do can help us plan for where we need to, say, protect habitats for species that are going to have reduced habitat in the future. I also think that rodents may be a really important key to restoring rangeland out here because they do play these important roles in water retention, in moving um, native seed around, and so on. All that said, I think that it's really imperative for scientists to be working collaboratively with land managers from the beginning of projects rather than doing a project and saying, hey, this is what I found. It's so useful to you, right? So I think getting together with land managers and people in the Department of Wildlife Resources and so on, and coming up with projects that really serve them, I think that's a better way to go.
0: What first got you interested in asking questions about small mammals? When I was
1: in college, I really wanted to do something related to conservation. I was casting around looking for a lab to work in. And there was a lab where I was an undergrad, studied paleoecology, this kind of quaternary ecology of species, and was trying to apply those long-term records to conservation. And I think I was really compelled by that because I think time is a dimension of ecology that often doesn't get thought about a lot. And I actually think it's critical because until we know how unusual now is, We can't really do anything about it. So I was really compelled by paleoecology in general. I ended up in a lab that focused on mammals. Mammals are a good study system for the quaternary because their fossils are really abundant and they preserve well and they can be bellwethers of change. It's a system for understanding environmental change in the last 10,000 years. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I love fieldwork. On a personal level, the real reason I got into science was because I want to be outside all the time. But in general, being a scientist is really fun because every day is really different, and I'm constantly, and sometimes this is a downside, but I'm constantly problem solving in a way that I think is kind of creative, pushes me in a lot of different directions. It's a career that's really varied. So I travel a lot, I'm in the field a lot, I get to work with students, so every day is really different.
0: Awesome. Well, Alison, thank you so much for this interview about your very cool work. <laughs> thank you. This was really fun. You can listen to this interview with Alison Stegner again or any of our past shows at kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.